we're here. We got the decorations up and everything, right? Uh, it's right around the corner. Hopefully you know that. Um, how many of you have all your Christmas gifts done, wrapped, and under the tree? Raise your hands. Oh, wow. Okay. Not too many. Everybody else. The rest of you who didn't raise your hand, you're all secretly hating those people right about now. Thinking, how did they do that? Um, but we're glad you're here this morning. And don't forget, we have a Christmas Eve service. It's just a simple service. We sing some carols, have a short devotion. We do communion together. And uh, we welcome you to that. It's, it's uh, 6 to 7 on Christmas Eve. So it's not too early, not too late. But sometimes I think as a, as a pastor um, in particular, years and years of doing this Christmas thing in a church... Uh, in this church specifically, the 23rd or 24th year, I think we've done this together. Um, you can kind of get to the point, to be honest with you, where you feel like you've said it all. You, uh, it's hard to be creative. <laughs> uh, usually we're teaching through books of the Bible. But around Christmas time or Thanksgiving, we'll take a break and do something that's maybe a little topical. But it's it's... The same story. The Christmas story never changes, does it? It's the same characters. um, The same outcome. We know exactly what's going to happen. And and, and sometimes for me, I I, I have to kind of step back from the whole thing, from everything. And just... um, particularly when we come to sections of the Word of God that we know so well. You know, we've read how many times the the, the Christmas story? Over and over and over again. That's not a bad thing, by the way. I'm not whining about that. It's a good thing. But it does become very familiar with us year after year. And sometimes we can grow cold to it. And this year it was kind of like the Lord just kind of prodded me a little bit and said, you know what, there's, you know, the story's the same, the characters are the same, everything, you know, the problems around Christmas that they had, the first Christmas, all that's the same. But something has changed since the last time you've been in this place in 2020. And the thing that's changed is you. We have changed as individuals. Even though the message is still the same, the story is still the same, year after year, one thing changes and it's you. You change. You're not the same person you were a year ago. For better (laughs) or for what? Worse, right? You're not the same person. And we come to know God's word and we realize that it doesn't change. But when we realize that we do, that we are a different person this year than we were last year. That when we read a text of scripture that's very familiar to it, we we may read it differently. It may mean something different to us this year. It speaks to our hearts differently. And in the last couple of weeks, Probably most of you do this too. You watch these Christmas classics, you know, the, the, the movies that you watch every year at this time of the year, a Christmas story, you know, you shoot your eye out, that kind of thing, a Grinch that stole Christmas, um, Christmas vacation, whatever. You watch all these shows. And there's two in my mind that stick out. And they're together. They, they just are cemented together in my mind as a child. And, and they're this, this Frosty the Snowman, Go ahead, laugh. And Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They just go together. They go hand in hand. And the reason is because when I was growing up in the early 60s, you know, you would have, it'd be closer to Christmas, maybe two weeks out, and, you know, that, that night was going to come, that Thursday night or that Friday night at 7 o'clock, man. And you knew Frosty was going to be on, but, you know, and the, you get to see the Norelco commercials with Santa riding that three-blade Norelco through the snow. I just thought that was so cool. You know, and the animation, according to today's standards, was horrible. But it was state-of-the-art in the day, right? And so all that stuff just flooded back in my mind. And for whatever reason, 
you know, I, I'd get my cup of hot chocolate and maybe a couple of marshmallows and whipped cream and a, I don't know why, a plate of buttered toast. And I'd go downstairs in the basement of our home and turn on the TV and wait. And the commercial would come on and then Frosty would come on and that show. But that was just a warm-up for Rudolph because Rudolph was the show of the night. And you remember that story. You had Sam the Snowman, you know, Burl Ives. He was the thing. And he kind of skirted out, kind of like the Norelco guy. He had no legs, the snowman. So he just kind of pushed his way through the snow. I thought that was kind of cool. And it was an animated story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And there's a whole history behind that if you go online and look at it. But you also had Hermie the elf. Remember Hermie? The poor elf that couldn't be an elf. He was just a miserable elf. But he wanted to be a dentist. And he was a pretty good dentist. Just kind of that nerdy little guy. You had Yukon Cornelius. <laughs> he was the self-proclaimed greatest prospector, prospector in all the world. And he was on a search, lifelong search for silver and gold. And you had Bumble, the abominable snowman. Remember him? That was kind of a weird creature. How many of you remember King Moonracer? Remember King Moonracer? He was the flying lion, remember? He was the, the, the ruler of the island of misfit toys. The island of misfit toys where all the little toys went that little boys and girls wouldn't play with. They were banished to this island to live out their miserable life. <laughs> no one paying any attention to them. It's interesting how that whole story comes together. And, and as I was watching Rudolph this past couple weeks, Something just stood out to me. I never saw this before about this show. That Santa, the the guy that played Santa in Rudolph, this cartoon, he he was just a mean, rude dude. Just a miserable man. And you say, well, where did he... Just watch the show. I mean, you know, the little elves are working so hard on their Christmas program and they want Santa to sing this song with them and they're going to practice and they're all excited he's there. and He kind of comes in kind of moping with an attitude. Like, come on, we got to get this thing on the road. I got, I got a meeting to do. I got to go somewhere. And he's just irritated even to be around these little goofy elves. And then when they're finished, they finish the little program they have to do, the song together. He says, well, that stunk. You better practice that, and he leaves. And I thought, I, how, how have I watched this for 50-plus years and never seen this? I've never saw this before. And then he goes outside, and he gets, you know, Donner, who's Rudolph's father, right? He's trying to shield his son's nose because it glows. And he puts his thing on, he takes his son out, and he's so proud, he's dancing. Well, the thing falls off, remember, and he's shamed. And Santa goes out and shames Rudolph. Shames his father, Donner. How dare you bring your misfit son out in public like this? And he actually uses those words. He says, shame on you, Donner. And I thought, wow. The things we miss. You know, I say all that to say this. We're approaching the Christmas story, right? We're coming to a time in our year where we celebrate Christmas. And it's not about the people of the first Christmas. It's not even about the place of the first Christmas. It's not about the problems surrounding the first Christmas. We've talked about all those things ad infinitum. But we're coming to, this morning, the purpose, the purpose of Christmas. In Matthew and the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they do a wonderful job covering all the other aspects. They give us a really good, good perspective on Christmas. They give us the people and the places. And all the other parts of the New Testament, some of them really drill down on the purpose of Christmas. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Because what a shame it would be, what a shame... It would be to go to all the parties, go to all the dinners, buy all the gifts, wrap all the gifts, open all the gifts, and miss it. Miss the purpose of Christmas. Skip past the real purpose of what this is all about. 
I want to make sure we have at least an opportunity to really think about that and to meditate upon it. So open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, you say, that's kind of a weird Christmas passage, Pastor. It is, but I'm praying that God will open our eyes and we'll be able to see the wisdom in, in reading this text of Scripture. I would ask you to stand in honor of God's Word this morning as we read this text of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's just two verses, verses 15 and 16. Then I'll pray and we can have a seat. Paul writes, he's writing to a young pastor here, Timothy, and he says, The saying, verse 15, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal Life. Father, we pray you bless this to our hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Most of us like peanuts. You know, they have the Christmas thing and the, the music and everything. It's kind of fun. The comic strip. And for decades, Snoopy's been trying to write a novel. You know, if you followed this, he's always trying to write a novel. Like, he has this new novel he wants to write, and it shows him sitting at the typewriter, and he's always, he has down on the page, it was a dark and gloomy night. A dark and stormy night, that's what it was. It was a dark and stormy night. And no matter what comic strip, whenever he's writing this novel, he always starts the same, with those same words. It was a dark and stormy night. And then, for some reason, he just gets brain locked, brain freeze, and he can't write anymore. And he just sits there, kind of frustrated. Well, one of the comics had Lucy come into the, the frame. And she comes up behind Snoopy, and she's looking over his shoulder. She's looking at what he's typing. And he has down on the page, it was a dark and stormy night. What are you doing? I'm writing a novel. She said, that's a stupid way to start a novel. I'm paraphrasing. Everybody knows that good stories start with once upon a time. Once upon a time. That's how you start a story. And she just kind of storms off after she gives her unsolicited advice and he's sitting there at the typewriter and he starts to type and he says, once upon a time. And he goes, it was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) He gets brain lock. Can't think of anything else. You know, sometimes a Christmas story can be like that. I think that all of us have had a dark and stormy night or a dark and stormy year or season in our lives. And what I want to share this morning is that Christmas is a reminder to us. Every year, it's the same story, the same thing. But it's a reminder to us that no matter how dark and no matter how stormy it gets, we come back to the same story over and over and over again. Because we can rejoice in this story, in spite of our circumstances. For some of you, I'll just be honest, you're living it right now, the dark and stormy night. And I wish I could say, oh, it's all going to change. I can't say that. It may not change. You may have many more dark and stormy nights. That's just the truth. I mean, it may be like God is saying to you like he did the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, Paul went to God three times and said, Lord, please take away this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. Three times. Apostle Paul went to God and asked him, please relieve me of this thing. And what did God say? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. My grace is what? Sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. There's a purpose in this. It may be that your circumstance, whatever they are, and you're, you're at the end, you feel like you've been worn out by these circumstances. You feel like your dark and stormy night has gone on too long. And it may not change. But one thing can change. Your perspective. Your perspective can change. And when your perspective changes on your circumstances, when you look at your circumstances in a different light, you can really rejoice. You can really praise God. Even if the circumstance is the same. And that's what Christmas 
reminds us of. Year after year, we rejoice no matter what because of what all this means. And so I want to share just three things with us that Paul, I think, wants us to see here in our text. First of all, we can rejoice no matter what our circumstances are because of the person who came to save The person who came to save. He says there, Christ Jesus came into the world to what? What's it say? Save sinners. I mean, who came to save sinners? Christ. It's not a trick question, right? You should be able to get that. It's right there. Well, Christ is his heavenly title, is it not? Jesus is his human name. And you have to kind of understand where this is coming from. Christ is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah that we read about in the Old Testament over and over and over again. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the first gospel message was preached. It was preached by God himself. And guess who it was preached to? It was preached to Satan. Verse 15 of Genesis 3, he says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, bruising somebody's heel is temporary. Some translations say he will crush your head. Crushing of the head is permanent. You don't get very far if somebody crushes your head. God says, I'm going to send one, one who is going to permanently, Satan, he's going to permanently defeat you. And God preaches this gospel message, the very first gospel message, all the way back in the book of Genesis. I'm going to send a Messiah. And so you see it through the whole Old Testament. It talks about the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to come to redeem. He's going to come to save. He's, he's coming from God to redeem his people. That's the message of the Old Testament. And then what happens? He shows up on the scene in the form of Jesus Christ, a little baby. And all the gospel writers call him what? Jesus Christ. They connect the two. They connect his divine title with a human name. And what Paul is telling us here is that now this this unnamed Messiah, he actually has a name. Did you know for centuries he didn't have a name? He just had a title. He was Israel's savior. He's the world's Lord. But Paul says now this Christ, this title, the Messiah, actually has a name. And guess what? His name is what? Jesus. Christ Jesus. I mean, most of you have been through as many Christmases as I have. Some of you have been through a lot more. You know what the name Jesus means, right? What's it mean? What's it mean? What? God saves. Thank you. That could have been a little better. (laughs) Maybe we should teach on the Christmas story more. Jesus means God saves. The Old Testament, Joshua, Joshua, Jesus, Jehovah, saves. That's what it means. And it wasn't some crazy name when they they said this. Everybody didn't say, wow, that's a radical name. Where did they find that? It was a very common name. I mean, it's like going to, when you go to Mexico and you say, hey, Juan, come here. You know, you have 50 people coming at you very common name Jesus is actually a very common name in Mexico as well but it means God saves and Paul along with the gospel writers they put these two together and what Paul is saying is that through whom God saves he has a name now this Messiah has his name his name is Jesus And by the way, that's the very same thing that the angel told Joseph, is it not, in in Matthew chapter 1? I mean, poor Joseph, he's freaking out. He's he's engaged to this this gal, and all of a sudden she says, "Uh, i got a problem, I'm pregnant. 
He's freaking out because he, he knows it's not his child. She's saying that he, she hasn't been with anybody else. And he's like, how can this be? And in Matthew chapter 1, we read in verse 18, it tells us about the angel showing up. And he basically says the same thing to Joseph that he said to Mary. It says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, after he found out that she was pregnant, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, you can tell that he loved her. He didn't want to publicly shame her. He could have. Because that was a very shameful thing to be pregnant and not married. He resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, it says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Say, what? She will bear a son, and you will call his name, there it is, Jesus. Jehovah saves. God saves. For he will save his people from their sins. Here's a theological term for you. Hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. What is that? It's important that we understand that God and man became one in Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God, 100% man. The 100% man came from Mary, because she was a woman. And the 100% God, he was 100% God because he didn't have a human nature as we know it to be. He had a divine nature because he wasn't born of an earthly father. If he was born of an earthly father like you and I were with an earthly mother, guess what? He would be just like us. He would be a sinner. And if he was a sinner, he couldn't have been God. And if he couldn't have been God, he couldn't have saved us from our sin. But because he had the body through Mary... But he had the divine nature through his father, it says the Holy Spirit. Guess what? That allowed him to be sinless, perfect in every way. We would say that Jesus had his, the nature of his father who was perfect, is perfect. It's imperative you believe that. Some people argue this point. Some people Say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, when it predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, that word virgin just means young woman. It doesn't mean somebody who's um, not sexually active. But the problem with that is when you come to the New Testament, you see Mary, who was a young woman, and when she finds out she's pregnant, what does she say? Yeah. (laughs) She says, how can that be? I've never been with a man. So Mary herself is admitting that she was a virgin. It's very plain. It's very clear. And why is this important? Because Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. Together, he is the 100% God man. God in a bod. Like us, but different. I love that song, Mary, Did You Know? And he, he writes one lyric. He says, did you know, Mary, that your baby boy had walked where angels trod. And then he says this, and when you kissed your little baby, Mary, that you kissed the face of God, Mary, did you know? I got news for you. Yeah, Mary did know this. She did know this. The angel told her this. She wasn't misinformed of who she gave birth to. See, we celebrate God in the flesh. I mean, you, moms, you think you got it tough. Think, think if you were Mary and you knew you were going to give birth to God. And then you had to raise God for 30-some years. I mean, talk about a task. It'd be a little intimidating. We celebrate God in the flesh at Christmas time. We celebrate the, the celestial becoming terrestrial. We celebrate the God out there 
became the God down here. He became like us so that one day we could become like him. He became like us so that he could die in our place. That's what the Bible says. I mean, do you realize, I'm sure you do, that God can't die? It's impossible for God to die or he wouldn't be God, right? God can't die. So he couldn't just come as God and not be human. That wouldn't work because he had to die for our sins. And when Christ, when Jesus died on the cross, he died as a human. God didn't die. He died. His human body died. You remember the fairy tale of the, the, the beautiful princess. She comes across a frog, right? And what she do? She kisses the frog. And what happens to the frog? It turns into a handsome donkey prince and you know they live happily ever after right well sesame seed had a version of this was a little perverted right the beautiful princess came across her frog she kissed the frog and what happened she turned into a frog i mean that was kind of freaky i mean how would you like your kids watching that right and they hopped off together but think about it that's kind of what happened at christmas is it not i mean christ comes down here on our behalf, in his love, and he becomes like us so that through him, through Christ, we can become like him. Michael Card writes a story, The Mystery. It's a beautiful song. I pray you look it up and listen to it. But the lyrics say this, When the Father longed to show a love he wanted us to know, he sent his only son, and so became a holy embryo. That is the mystery. More than you can see. Then he says this, give up your pondering. Quit trying to figure it out and fall on your knees. He says, a fiction as fantastic and wild, a mother made by her own child. A hopeless babe who cried was God incarnate in man deified. This is a mystery more than you can see. Give up your pondering and fall down on your knees. Because the fall to devastate, creator must now recreate. So to take our sin was made like us so that we could be like him. See, that's the mystery of the incarnation. And do you know what? It's mandatory that you believe that. It's mandatory in order to spend eternity with God in heaven that you believe that the literal Jesus Christ came out of heaven and that he is God and became flesh. You cannot be born again. You cannot be a Christian without believing that. You have to believe that Jesus, that God became, took on flesh through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an optional thing. And you say, well, where do you get that? Well, for one, 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, whoever uh, loves whoever has been born of him. The first evidence that a person has in their life when they're born again is that they believe that the, the human Jesus is the divine Christ. You have to believe that. It's not optional. Everyone who is in heaven one day we'll know and believe that the human Jesus is the divine Christ. And notice it says everyone who believes. Believes. That, that word belief is not just a, a, an intellectual agreement. It's not just looking at the facts of the Christmas story and saying, yeah, I get it, I, I know that. It's not just saying, I, yeah, I, I believe Jesus is a real person. I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. I even believe that he died on a cross. And I believe on the third day he rose from the dead, victorious. I believe all that. I'm here to tell you, I believe that for up to I was 19 years of age. And I wasn't born again. I didn't know the Lord. 
There are people who intellectually believe all of that, but they haven't been born again. And why is that? Because John is not talking about a head knowledge. He's not talking about knowing it up here. He's not talking about just agreeing, just mental assent. In fact, that Greek word for believe is equivalent to really our English word for receive. It's it's not just here in your head. It's it's a reception. It's, It's the receiving of something. In John chapter 1 verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, speaking of Christ, who believed in his name, what happens? He gave the right to become children of God. And then listen to this in verse 13. I'll just throw this in. And who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Then he goes even further. He says, nor of the will of man. Wow. Well, whose will saved you then? If it wasn't your own will, he says, but of God. It's a miraculous thing that God does in the human heart. So to believe in Jesus as Messiah means receiving him as Savior and Lord. It's not just a principle to believe. We're not celebrating a principle at Christmas time. We're celebrating a person. So it's not just about a profession of faith. You hear people say that all day long. Oh, I made a profession of faith. I mean, that's all good and fine. But it's not just up to the profession of faith. A profession of faith does not save you. Do you understand that? It's the possession of Jesus by faith. That's what saves you. Many times people make a profession of faith. Oh, I did that already. It didn't change anything. Because it was all up here. It was in their head. It was not in their heart. A profession of faith in Jesus must be a reception, a receiving by faith of Christ. That's what will change your heart. That's what will change your life. So we're celebrating the person who came to save, and his name is Christ Jesus. Secondly, quickly, we have reason to rejoice today, no matter what our circumstances are, because of the problem that he came to solve. The problem he came to solve. I heard this all of my Christian life almost. Why did Jesus come? Oh, Jesus came to set an example for us. Have you ever heard that? That's why he came. That's not why he came. He didn't come to set an example. Do you realize apart from his divine power, you could never live up to his example? You could never do it on your own. So what would be the use of setting an example for us if we can't do it? He didn't come to set an example for us. He came to solve a problem that is ours. It's everyone's. It's a universal problem. That's what the text says. Christ Jesus came into the world, what? To save sinners. There's the problem. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of Christmas, that Christ Jesus came into the world. Now, if, if, if I come into a room, that means simply, logically, that I was somewhere else before I came into that room. Would you agree? If I enter into somewhere, that means that I was somewhere else. And what this means here is that Jesus, on the first night, as this little earthly baby in that manger, that wasn't the first day for him. That wasn't the beginning of his existence. He entered into the world. He came into the world, meaning that he was somewhere else beforehand. And he's always been. So he's saying that he's here and he's come to solve this problem. That's the good news. That's the good news. 
There's no good news without bad news. You can't have good news without bad news. I mean, the good news is good because it's contrasted with the bad. Would you agree? Sure. Well, the bad news in the Bible is that you and I, all of us, are what the Bible calls sinners. We've fallen short of of God's expectation for us. We've done something that dishonors God. Everybody here in this room today has sinned to one extent or another in their life. Maybe they told a lie. Maybe they thought something. Maybe they used God's name in vain. Maybe they took something irrespective of its value that wasn't theirs. We've all done something that God says that's sin. We can't argue with that. The problem is we can't do anything about it on our own. We're kind of stuck. We're completely ill-equipped, unequipped, inept to do anything about our sinful nature. You can't wish it away. You can't practice it away because we're born with it. And what that means is that we cannot not sin just as natural creatures. That's just our natural go-to. Some of you get frustrated with your children. And the older they get, the worse they get sometimes. And you think, wow, what, what am I going They've always been that way. They've been sinners since they've been born. You don't have to teach a child to sin. They just do it naturally, like all of us. And you don't have any ability to do anything about that. You can't live in freedom from sin until you have been freed from sin by Christ himself. That's the only way. And that's the problem that he, the Savior, came to save. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And the Bible says that either we have to have our sin separated from us, or guess what? Our sin will cause us to be separated from God for all eternity. What does it mean to have our sins separated from us? That's what it means to be forgiven. That's what it means to be redeemed. That's what it means to be saved. We have to be saved from our sin. And he's saying that Christ came, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And, and, you know, people hear that, and some people get a little upset. You tell that to somebody who's not a Christian, and, and they think, oh, you're just being condescending. You know, you, all you want is everybody to be saved, saved, saved. No, we're not pointing our finger at you if you're an unbeliever here this morning and say, you have to be saved. We're saying everyone has to be saved. We're all in this together. We're all sinners, and sinners need to be saved. That word saved, what does it mean? It, it, it means to be rescued. It means to be delivered, you could say. If someone was drowning in a pool, and they're near death, they're turning blue, what's the only thing that matters to that individual? What's the only thing The only thing that matters, the only thing they need is they need somebody to come and save them. Do they not? If someone is in a terrible car accident and their car is crushed and their their body is wrapped and encased with metal and they're bleeding out in the car, they're bleeding to death, what what is the one thing that they need more than anything else? The only thing that matters to that person is, man, when is the rescue team going to get here and rescue me, deliver me, get the jaws of life in there and break open this metal so I can get out? See, the Bible teaches us, beloved, that we were all born and our souls are, are just... Racked with sin. And we are completely inept. We are completely ill-equipped to do anything about it. We are drowning in a cesspool of our own sin. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I have entered into your world to rescue you. To save you. To deliver you. 
There's nothing that should be misunderstood as condescending in that message. We should fall to our knees and our response should be, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I don't think when people saved from a pool of near drowning, they get out and they go, you know, uh, lifeguard, let me talk to you. You know, The way you pulled me out of the, the pool, that was a little rough. You know, they, they don't care. It doesn't matter to them. That should be the celebration. We are celebrating a problem that only he could fix. He could solve. Christ Jesus entered into the world to save sinners. And then he says this, of which all of us, right, we're all in this same together. But Paul says this, I am the worst. I'm the foremost sinner. You talk about sinners, I'm the head of the class. That's what Paul says. I've met a couple people in my life. When I've talked to them about the gospel, they said, you know, Steve, I think the message of Jesus saving sinners is great. I understand. I'm sure he did that for you. But you don't understand. You don't understand what I've done. You, you, I mean, you know, you talk about your sin, that's nothing. You, if I told you what my sins were, you would understand. There's no way God could save me. And I always tell them the same thing. The truth of the scripture is that it, The word of God never differentiates between savable sinners and unsavable sinners. It doesn't. It doesn't differentiate between, well, we have redeemable sinners and unredeemable sinners. It doesn't say that. It says, what? We're all sinners. (laughs) Romans 3, 10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, Paul says. Together they have become worthless. No one does any good. Not even one. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Go figure. In the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's sin. That's the sin that we are in. A little further down in verses 22 to 24, he says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Hear that? There's no distinction. Here he's talking about Jew, Gentile. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, the reason Paul goes into all this and he shares the rest of this with us, that, you know what, I am the worst of the worst. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, and I'm the worst. But then he says in verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason. He tells us why God saved him. Because he was such a, a worthless, horrible sinner. He was at the bottom level Or the top level, if you look at it that way. He was the chief sinner. He said that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, people read that and they say, oh, well, Paul's being so humble here. You know, he's just admitting that he's such a horrible sinner. No, he's not. This isn't the humbleness of Paul coming out. He's saying, he's admitting, I struggle with being saved because of some of the things that I've done. Paul never got over the fact that before he became a Christian, before God visited him, before Jesus Christ showed up on the road to Damascus, we all know the story, I'm sure. If not, you can read it. He never got over the fact that as Saul, this religious character, all the the trappings of religion. When you looked at Saul, you looked at a religious man. Look at him. He was religious on the outside, but you know what? Saul was depraved to the utter extent on the inside. To the degree that before he proclaimed the gospel, this Paul that we read about, 
Before he proclaimed the gospel, he was trying to destroy the gospel as a religious man. He wasn't doing it just to hate on people. He thought he was doing the right thing. Before he was loving Christians, what was he doing? He was killing them. He was overseeing their slaughter. Paul never got over that. Would be to God, we never get over our sin that God forgave in our lives. He always saw himself. Here I was, a religious person. Here I was. I knew all these Old Testament verses. I was a Pharisee. I was all this stuff. And here I was killing God's people. Paul says, I am the worst. But the reason he came and the reason he redeemed me and the reason he saved me is because God wanted to use me as an example. That you know what? If he can save me, he can save anybody. You should have no question here, sitting here this morning, no matter what you have done in your past, that God can save you. That God can forgive you of your sins. I mean, I don't know if I should say this or not, but we have people in our church, small church, right? But we have people here who've been in jail. They've been in prison. They've been on drugs. They've been adulterers and adulteresses. They've been married many times over. We have people in our congregation who have been liars, who have been thieves, all sorts of backgrounds. You say, why would you even say that? Because it's right here. This is what it's about. If God is willing to save the worst of sinners, guess what? That means he's willing to forgive all sinners. Doesn't matter how bad they are. Doesn't matter where they come from or what they've done. Paul says, look, I'm at the bottom and he saved me. I'm the worst. And if he will forgive the worst of sinners... He's willing to forgive you. He's willing to forgive me. So I don't want you leaving here this morning ever questioning, did Jesus come for me? Did Jesus come to die for my sin? I'm telling you right now, yes, he did. He did. He came for you. You don't ever have to wonder about that question again. But today... I would ask that you not just believe that. That you not just give your mental assent to that. But that you receive him as your Savior, as your Lord. That's what will change your life. So we celebrate, even though our circumstances may not change, because of the person who came to save, because of the problem he came to solve. And then lastly here, because of the present he came to share. I hope you all get Christmas gifts, right? I mean, I hope nobody's going to go to their tree and there's nothing there. That would be horrible. If there is, come and see me. We'll, we'll do something for you. Give you a gift card or something. I hope you'll get a gift. Do you ever ask yourself, why do we do this every year? Why do we make such a big deal out of this? You know, you go out and you buy gifts, you do it online, whatever. You've got to get everything here on time by this date and get it wrapped. And, you know, I mean... We have our grandkids living with this and a little OCD with all the gift wrapping things. You know, they say, Grandpa, you can't wrap any gifts because it's got to be done a certain way with a certain paper and with a certain... <laughs> it's crazy, right? It looks beautiful. You know, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Got some newspaper, yeah, we're wrapping in that. It doesn't matter. Well, it does to them. Tree looks beautiful. There's all these gifts under it. Why do we do this? We do it. We give gifts to one another because what are we doing? We're emulating that gift that God gave to us in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of all. Look at what it says in verse 16 there, 1 Timothy 1, to those who were to believe in him for what? What's it say? Eternal life. 
Eternal life. He saves you from something. What does he save you from? Your sin. But you know what? He also saves you to something. That's the good news. He saves you from your sin, but he saves you to eternal life. When you think of those words, eternal life, it's throughout the New Testament. If you go through the New Testament, you'll see it almost on every page. Those two words, eternal life. Over 40 times, eternal life, eternal life, every page. This is what he came to give us. He came to give us the gift of eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or John 3.16, we know that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? That whosoever believes in him. Should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. 1 John 2.25, and this is the promise. God made a promise to us. This is the promise that he made to us. What is it? Eternal life. Over and over and over. Well, what is it? If I asked you, what is, what is eternal life? What would you tell me? Many of us wouldn't have a clue to really know how to explain it. Now, some of you are sitting there. I know what you're saying. Boy, this guy's pretty stupid. Eternal life, that means you live forever. Right? That's probably what you're thinking. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. That's not what God is offering us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Because throughout the New Testament... The Bible says this over and over again, that everybody's going to live forever. Do you know that? Everybody's going to live forever. Once you're born, your body will die, definitely. It's appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. But your soul, the Bible says, is eternal, and it's going to live forever. Everybody has that kind of eternal life. It's just a question of where you're going to spend it. One of two places. Heaven or hell. Now some of you might say, well, eternal life is living in heaven forever. That's what I believe, rather than living in hell. No, that's not quite it either. Because it says, when we believe we have eternal life. Whoever believes on Christ, they have eternal life. Not they will have. What that means is that eternal life is not a future promise. Do you know that? Isn't that amazing? It's not something that is in the future for us who know Christ. It's not something that we get in the future. It's, it's a here and now promise. We possess it now as believers. It's not something that you get when you die. It's not something that you receive when you pass away. It's something that you have now while you're living The moment you believed on Christ, the moment you acknowledged that his sacrifice for your sin was sufficient, you put your faith and trust in that, and you said, you know what, Lord, I'm tired of carrying this burden of sin. I'm tired of trying to earn your favor. I'm going to trust in the one who paid the price for my sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you did that, you possessed eternal life in that split second. It's not something that you get when you die. It's something that you receive while you live. The moment the Spirit enters into your life as a believer, you have eternal life. We think, well, we're going to die and get it in heaven. No. You get it while you're living right now, after you believe, after you trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. And you say, well, that's great, but it still doesn't answer the question, what is it? (laughs) What is eternal life? Well, Jesus, I'm so glad you asked, because Jesus actually answers that question. 
He tells us exactly what eternal life is. If you look over in John chapter 17, Gospel of John chapter 17, Jesus says, this is so simple. He says, and this is eternal life. It's like I knew you would ask, but this is eternal life. And he's praying to the Father. He says, that they know you, that they know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Jesus says eternal life is, listen, knowing God. Knowing God. I can tell some of you are disappointed. <laughs> some are saying, wait a minute, what, what about the mansion on the hilltop? You know, I want that. And, and the, the, the streets that are paved with gold. And man, I'm looking forward to seeing all my friends who've gone before me. And, and isn't that eternal life? We'll experience all those things, trust me. But that pales in comparison to eternal life. It pales in comparison to eternal life. Because eternal eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God. Nothing comes close to that. Nothing matches that. And by the way, that word knowing, it's the same word in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when it talks about Adam and Eve early on. Adam, what? Knew his wife. She knew, he knew Eve. And what happened? A child was born. Abraham, what? Knew Sarah. And what happened? A child was born. See, this word knowing, it's the idea that there is nothing closer. There's nothing more personal. There's, there's nothing more intimate than this kind of knowing. It's very real. It's the kind of knowing where two people come together, two completely separate entities, and they come so close. Though they're independent entities, they, so, they come so close, and it's, it's so close, it's so personal, it's so intimate, that they become one. Jesus is saying there is nothing better then when God meets you where you are and he redeems you, he saves you, he forgives you of your sin and you finally know him, you are forgiven. And because he became like you and because you surrendered to him, he says that I'm going to be with you And we are going to be one forever. Wow. He says that is eternal life. And it starts right now. See, this eternal life, this is what we're supposed to be living out before a lost and dying world as Christians. So that they would look at us and go, I don't know what it is they have, but I want it. I want that kind of life. It's not about how many verses you can quote to them. Guess what? They don't care. They could care less. The thing that we are to live out is what God has put in us through Christ. And that's life. Life eternal. Because it's that kind of life that the world cannot copy. The enemy cannot mimic its true life, eternal life lived out right here, right now in a lost and dying world. And you know what? When believers see it, they're like, that is what I need. When you read through the book of Acts and you look at the first first church, I mean, think about it. They had nothing. They didn't even have this completely. They didn't even have a complete Bible. They had no technology, no lights, no amplification, nothing. No websites, no phones, iPads. 
They had no possessions. They had no building. They had no money, no power, no political influence or persuasion. They had nothing. And yet, this group of disciples turned the world upside down. I mean, we're proof of it. 